Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, uh, Texas, on Friday, June the 16th, and welcome to our commentary. What a treat uh, we have for you today, particularly our friends in Babalu, who are going to be watching this on on Friday night or over the weekend. Uh, But that gentleman there on the other side of the screen, our our good friend, Dr. Carlos Aide, who... uh, has been my virtual friend for about 10 years, although I feel like I've known you longer. I think that's one yeah. of the things that happens, and it just seems like it's been longer than 10 years that we met through through the, the Internet. And uh, tonight we're going to remember the story of Babalu 20 years ago. Both of us uh, contribute in the Babalu project, and we're just going to talk in general about Cuba. So let me... Let me say uh, welcome, uh, Carlos. Un gran abrazo uh, to you uh, to to our to welcome to our video, uh, Carlos. You and I, I guess, are almost from the same generation, a couple of years apart. So I'll I'm a couple of years younger, but I'll give you the benefit of the doubt and say we're the same generation. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> uh, I, I I was always fascinated by this story in your book. Uh, uh, waiting for snow in Havana. But this is a story that I've shared this story with other people, uh, even, you know, those who have not read the book. And and the story is December 31st, 1958, you and your parents are driving home from a wedding. And uh, your mother says that things look kind of peaceful, kind of quiet uh, in Havana. And, of course, I was probably... Who knows where I was that day? I don't quite remember, but I was at home, I'm sure, waiting for my parents to celebrate that night, too. And, you know, when you think back at that night and how that night changed you and me, it's hard to believe. Who could have imagined uh, that night uh, what eventually happened, Carlos? Who would have imagined, Carlos? My mom was kind of spooked because the streets were too quiet, right? There was supposed to be more partying going on, I guess. But, um, yeah, no, uh, she was very spooked by it all. My dad, I, I, I mean, maybe my memory's faulty, but I think my dad remained fairly silent about, yeah. about what was going on. But the following morning, boom, yes. ah, he was the one who broke the news to me. He walked yeah. into my bedroom and said, Batista se fue. Batista right. has left the country, Right. Right. And then throughout the day, everybody was talking about, well, what's next? What's next? And my father, oddly enough, because, you know, he didn't do anything about it. He said, this man is no good. Mm-hmm. This Fidel character, he's, he's a gangster. Mm-hmm. He's killed people. He's probably a communist. This man is no good. Right. 
Well, your father, your father got it right. I, I will confess, my parents had mixed feelings. Uh, my parents were not Vaticanos, so they had mixed feelings. Right. Uh, but they were, I mean, they, they were not necessarily, they weren't necessarily rooting for Batista to leave. They were caught by surprise. But what I remember the next morning was my mother fixing us breakfast, you know, pan con leche, which is a very popular, uh-huh. as, as you remember that. Yes. And my mother feeding us, right, Banco Leche, and then uh, Banco, and then my my dad on the phone, and there's a there was a TV on, with the news, and and it it just I don't honestly I, I didn't make much of it I mean, but my parents were aware that there was a big change. But I mentioned to you before we started that there's not there's not an expert in the world in 1958 or 59 now the next day, who would have predicted this? If you had put the biggest experts about Cuba yeah. in a room in December 1958 and you had said to them, this is what's going to happen, nobody <laughs> would have believed you, uh, Carlos. No, no, they would have thought you were you were insane. They might have uh, sent you to Masorra, the Masorra. insane, insane asylum. <laughs> That's right. They probably would have sent you there. And I think maybe the reason, Carlos, and I remember talking to my father about this, my late father, um, I think the reason is because nobody expected the United States to put up with it too too long. Yeah. I mean, I think there was a sense, and a bad idea that we believed this, but there was a sense, uh, no, los americanos no van a tolerar esto. No, I mean, um, it wasn't just Cold War. It was uh, the fact that, you know, the United States had had the so-called Monroe Doctrine in effect for so long, you know, and and they never hesitated to interfere in other countries, including Cuba, where they, you know, they uh, interfered uh, several times since 1902. So to this day, I think the main reason that, the, this dictatorship has lasted so long was that President John Kennedy betrayed the uh, Brigade 2506 men who had landed. Everybody knows it as the Bay of Pigs. Well, he betrayed them. There was a plan. The United States said, you know, was not going to interfere directly. They, they found 1,500 some brave young Cubans. Uh, some uh, in their early teens, and some uh, were actually World War II veterans. <laughs> uh, that they didn't deliver the the promised support; they left them stranded on the beach. Right. That now was you it. were over, you were already here when that happened, right? No, no, you, I was there when the invasion. you were still there. Okay, because I yeah, was there. Yeah. I remember that as no, much as yeah. I can remember. I remember an airplane flying over our home. I do too. And uh, dropping our, we were, leaflets. Remember, they were leaflets. They were dropping bombs near my house. Oh, really? Well, wow. because because I lived uh, just a few blocks, maybe ten blocks or so, twelve at most, from Columbia Airfield. Oh, where, okay. Which they bombed, uh, but they failed. They failed. They didn't destroy uh, Castro's airplanes. Yeah, yeah. But the bombs were exploding really close to my house. And my next door neighbor, who was the uh, the neighborhood snitch, the comité, 
the defensa, he got up on his roof and was firing a pistol <laughs> at these B-26s. Right. And, yeah, the B-26. I, I didn't know at the time that it was a B-26, but flew by. We used to live in, you know, remember Paseo that would go north-south and it would end up at the Malecon? Yes. So we used to live maybe two blocks away from the water. Oh, uh, wow. Bahia de La Habana, right? We used, and near us was uh, the hotel. Um, oh my gosh, I can't, it's not it's not the Nacional. It's the other one that was down in the Malacón. It will come Riviera. Yeah. Riviera. We used to live within walking distance of that. In fact, my wow. brother and I used to play baseball. A few years later, we used to play baseball in that park that they had there. Yeah. Over by the Riviera, we used to play baseball there. They had this big park that uh, was just there, and uh, we used to play baseball. So we we were close. But what I remember was an airplane dropping leaflets, and I didn't know oh. that it was a B twenty six until later when I became oh. acquainted uh, with the aircraft. But it was clearly four props. That much yeah. I, oh, yeah. I remember. Yeah, yeah. they were remember all uh, uh, World War Two vintage airplanes. Um, and um, they were uh, painted to look like Cuban Air Force planes. Right. I remember that afterwards. Uh, yeah. But anyway, it was that. A, yeah, that much. Yeah, that much detail. I don't remember. I just remember the plane flying, flying by, and my brother and I were looking out the window and saw this plane going by. Which, of course, we didn't live anywhere near an airport, so we. <laughs> We, you know, we we were not accustomed to seeing airplanes no. flying by, but then of course that that book uh, or that incident and you're leaving Cuba inspire you to write the, the book Waiting for Snow in Havana, and you were part of what came to be known as Pedro Pan. It was not called Pedro Pan back no. then. It didn't uh, have I'm not name. sure. Yeah, I don't know what they used to call it then, but you were part of that and you came here. You. Your mother and father stayed behind, but I think you came with your brother, right? If I recall yes. from your book. Yeah. Yep. Yep. He was three he years came. older. Yeah. And what year was that, Carlos, that you left? 62. April 6, 1962. So it's yeah. funny how the calendar works because that program pretty much ended in October during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes. So and, you were eight months earlier, I guess. And in my in my case, though, the 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 um, October missile crisis had intense personal ramifications mm. because my mother had her exit permit for November 7th. Ooh. So I was expecting to be reunited with my mom in, in a week and a half to two weeks. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, my foster mother shows me the newspaper, uh, mm. Miami Herald, I think it was, um, she she couldn't say it to me. Right. She said, "Here, read this," mm -hmm. and it was the article that said that um, because of the missile crisis, Fidel had closed down um, all airports, yeah. and nobody could leave. Well, it also had an impact on us too because we were hoping to leave, yeah. like others, not with Pedro Pan, not the Pedro Pan program, right. but as a family, and that made us have to go through Mexico. So yep. we actually had to leave through Mexico, Jamaica, and then come to to the U.S. And what so year it, was that? In 64. Because yeah, we left right. in July. See, we left. Here's a funny thing. Here's a funny thing. We left on July the 2nd, 
1964. And that happened to be Jose Canseco's birthday. <laughs> so I just <laughs> I just saw that one day, you know, I was looking at his biography and I said, my gosh, I was leaving Cuba the day Jose Canseco was born. Uh, I just thought, always thought that was one of those funny uh, coincidences. Yeah. But you left, and of course, here we are. And, th and this is again yeah. the the part that I that I always find so so amazing that you know I don't know when we left. I have no idea if my parents thought this was forever or not. I think they were always hopeful that oh, there yeah. would be a change in Cuba and they could yeah. return. But obviously, as time went by, that became less yeah. uh, less likely. But yeah. Waiting for Snow in Havana, I always thought the title was wonderful. Tell me again. I know you told me before when we did a podcast a few years ago, but how did that title happen? Because it's such a great title, Waiting for Snow well, in Havana. The thing is, the, I before I sat down to write the book, I had a title for it. But it wasn't Waiting for Snow in Havana. The title I had, um, eventually my editor and publisher would not allow me to use the original title was Kiss the Lizard Jesus. <laughs> because my character's name was Jesus. Right. Uh, anyway, so that when they told me I couldn't use that, I got really mad, angry. So I came up with 250 titles, alternative titles, many of them variations on a theme. And on the list was Waiting for Snow in Havana. But that was actually a, a different version of a Monty Python skit, the dead parrot skit, uh, skit <laughs> where where man brings a dead parrot back to the pet store and the pet store owner keeps insisting, no, he's not dead. He's a Nor Norwegian parrot. And then at right. one point he says, oh, no, he's only pining for fjords. <laughs> No, I, I tell you, we're dating ourselves when we talk about Monty Python humor. But well, I would recommend Monty Python humor to anybody. In fact, there was a reason one of their uh, one of their episodes or whatever was in the news lately because in one of the episodes, one of them wants to be a woman. Did you remember that one where one of them says that he wants to be a woman? And, and, and of course, that has become popular now. You know? Yes, absolutely. But and the thing uh, is, I the the title. Uh, is not just a ripoff from Monty Python. Right. As a kid, I was desperate to see snow. Oh, I see. And I wanted snow in Havana. I actually thought was one day I was must have been about eight years old, <laughs> looking at a map of the world, and I realized, and this was true back then, the only countries that made stuff, the only countries that were wealthy were in cold climates, right? Including sure. Australia and New Zealand. And of course, back then, Argentina was like, you know, the, the, one of the most, uh, perhaps yeah. the best economy in, in, in all of the former Spanish colonies. Right. And I, I, I attributed it to weather, the fact that we were so hot in Cuba. We could use a little snow, things would be better. <laughs> That's right. No, you mentioned Argentina, it reminded me of when we first left Cuba and I would would study uh, Cuban history and the Cuban economy and so on pre-Castro, it seemed like every time I, I would go to the Encyclopedia Britannica or any of the sources back then, it was a little different than it is now. 
that Cuba on things like life expectancy and literacy mm-hmm. would always be like number one, number two, number three with Argentina and Uruguay. It was always Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, okay. and Cuba would be in that uh, in yep. that ranking. Well, I mentioned, uh, and which is the big reason that I wanted to be with you today, is as we celebrate 20 years of of the Babalu blog, I came in probably sometime around 2010. That's when I came in and I, I got more active in 2013. When did you first join the Babalu blog or when did you start you know, I writing? Can't, I can't, I don't have a, I can't fix a date on it. It was about that same time, more or less. I started yeah. off uh, slowly and gradually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, um, I remember I got an email from Val, Val Prieto, Val Prieto the yeah. founder of Babalu blog. That's right. And he had a question t- uh, to put to me about the feast of San Lazaro, St. Lazarus, right? So I wrote back to him and we started writing back and forth and I, you know, I started reading Babalu. And at that time I was um, very, very much still very much consumed by the success of my book and talking. I, I, there's one year when I gave over a hundred talks on waiting for snow in Havana. Wow! So I was I was in, um, you know, thickly uh, embedded in in the whole Cuba thing and talking about Cuba mm-hmm. and keeping up with news and so on. And I liked I you know excited, uh, I liked the way that Val wrote. He he wrote some beautiful pieces. Mm-hmm. A very personal, yeah. of a very personal nature. Yeah. Right, and I thought, well, this is one way. I and I, I realized what was going on. Right, what was going on was that the, the Val and now Alberto de la Cruz, they're from a younger generation, mm-hmm. of younger than you and me, and they were um, more Americanized mm-hmm. than you and I could ever be. Now I think well, Alberto, Alberto was born was in the born United States. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't, I'm not sure about Valentin, but I think Alberto definitely was. Yeah, yep. But yeah. they, they, you know, they, they were very comfortable writing in English. Yeah, no, I, I love them. That's how, that's how kind of I got together with him was that way through, through Val and through Alberto connected with him. Now I have to tell you that my, the first time I contributed something, what really attracted me to contribute to Babalu, was the fact that I always wanted to write about Cuban baseball. Uh-huh. And 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 it just became the perfect place uh, to write about Cuban baseball because Cuba has such a history of baseball that we yeah. we sometimes you know don't I mean I sometimes I am amazed at, at how much Cuban baseball uh, the history that I used to talk to my late father about so that's what attracted me and then I would sometimes also write some political things but the fact that it's been around for twenty years and I really want to congratulate Val and, and Alberto for for the fact that they stuck with it and, and they've made it into what it is now, a great uh, a great website. I think it's the number one, what I like to call Cuban-American website yeah, in the country. It's, I mean, it's, a, it's in English, and, you know, it, it yes. opens up, it opens up um, our perspective, Cuban exile perspective, to, I don't know how many, but many, uh, yeah who only speak English and can only read in English here in this country. Non-Cubans. That's right. No, you're right. And non, you're right. I mean, non-Hispanics. 
And I think even for people like you and me who were born there and but grew up in the United States, sometimes for me it's a little bit easier to read in English than, than in Spanish. I can read in Spanish, but I can read better in English. So Absolutely. I think that that's, uh, that's the reason that maybe it's attracted to me as yeah. well. Yes, and especially I'm sure you have the same memory um, because, you know, we learned English and, it, and we were all received so much of our education in English. Every time I picked up this, this Cuban newspaper, Diario Las Americas, they, they used Baroque Spanish. They wrote like they were in the 17th century. Right. I, I had trouble understanding what was yeah. going on. And actually, it's very funny because uh, last week or the week before, um, Alberto uh, sent to me the, the Cuban cartoonist uh, Proyas, Antonio Proyas, okay. who is best known for the spy versus spy uh, comics and Mad Magazine. He was Cuban. He fled Cuba. Alberto gave me the resignation letter that Proyas turned into his newspaper. It took me about five hours to translate it because he wrote the same way. It was yeah. so bar- it's beautiful. Right. It, it was sheer poetry, but boy, it, not accessible for to even someone whose mother tongue. <laughs> right. Well, let me tell you something about Diario de las Americas because that became my father's favorite newspaper. Now, yeah. we, we didn't read it. We used to get it in the mail. Because yes. we lived in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, yes. So my mom got every, it in Chicago. Yeah, so we used to get this, you know, little newspaper in plastic in the mail. Right. And uh, I remember my father used to love their editorials because their editorials were in English and in Spanish. Yeah. And my father would remember that. They were in both yes, languages. Uh, yeah. yeah. And my father used to love them. My father used to love them. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we would often talk about it in the table, uh, dinner table. And... One of my regrets is that we didn't save any of them. Yeah. Uh, no, no, they're probably digitized. Yeah, know? I'm sure they are. I'm oh. sure they are. But the idea that uh, that that you know I could hold in my hands back then a newspaper, and the other thing that happened with my father too and my parents, my father used to get a monthly newsletter called El Enduso. Now Enduso or Enduso was a a, a river or uh, something near Sabuela Grande, where he was from. So oh. there was a community of exiles from Sabuela Grande of his generation who used to oh. publish this newsletter in the United States and actually all around the world. And we, they used to get this, uh, this and my father would, would say, oh, look at this guy here who's a doctor. He was a friend of mine in Sabuela Grande. And it, it became a, a real treat for, for us to to get those things because it kept us connected uh, to Cuba in, you know, because one of the, and I think we talked about it one time that you come here, you get involved in, in the U S and school and high school and then college and so on. You don't intentionally disconnect, but you have a hard time staying connected because everything else right. around you. And so, you know, for a while there, it just took me a while to, I mean, I wasn't avoiding Cuba because I would always have it with my parents, but it wasn't really until Mariel that I sort of all of a sudden got hit between the eyes and I said, these people are leaving the place where I left. And that's when I, it was, I guess, 1980. It was then that I became very connected uh, with Cuba and have been ever since. They have had a tremendous interest 
it was thing. I think you mentioned to me one time, or I read in one of your articles, that what you reconnected was the story of the young boy Adrian, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that that's. Uh, I had spent many many years. Uh, for me, given the business I'm in, you know, higher education, I um, I got so tired of when people ask me, "Oh, where, where are you from?" and I would say Cuba then I'd have to hear their little mini lecture on how wonderful the Cuban right. revolution was, right. you know, blah, blah, blah. Or they would ask me, you know, how much property my family owned and, you know, or, uh, you know, I, I would have to sit and listen to the, all the nonsense. They, and if I, if I countered with the real history, then I would immediately feel hostility. So, uh, for a while there, I, I just, it was all too painful to me, and I just let go of it. No, I but, can understand that. I can understand But then I, 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 I also lived in places where there were very few Cubans. Same here. Same experience. Right. So um, I came to Yale in 1996, and there were three Cubans on the faculty, one of them from Sagua La Grande. Oh, my goodness. That is cool. And... The Baseball Connection, Roberto Gonzalez Echevarria, who wrote the book in English. The Pride of Havana, right? Yeah. On, yes. on Cuban baseball. Yeah. So um, I, I, I immediately met these uh, Cuban intellectuals who kind of reawakened in me uh, my Cubanness. Right. But, or sometimes just a single word that they would say, uh, you know, especially Roberto is, is – a, a beautiful writer in both languages, uh, English yeah. and Spanish. But um, I still remember one time one of my colleagues, one of the three, uh, said to me, and so we were just joking around, and, and she said, yeah. and oh, God, that word. I said, well, that word has such depth of meaning for me. There's no English word that has, because, you know, that's, that's when your parents uh, threaten you. <laughs> Right, you've done, right. You've done something bad. You say, Preparate. Preparate, right. Get right. ready. Oh, right. God. And then I realized, you know, I had all this Cuban stuff buried in me, including all those memories. Um, yeah. Well, I, there's two Cuban expressions that come from baseball that my parents would use all the time, and I've never been able to forget them. I use them now. The first one is, La bola pica y se extiende. When la bola pica is extiende, which means the problem is getting more complicated. That's oh. what it means. Because in baseball, the ball lands and it keeps going, which means that it turns a single into a double or triple or whatever. So la bola pica y se extiende. That was a phrase that my parents would always use when things were getting complicated. And the other one is, te pusieron en tres y dos, o estás en tres y dos, which is another oh. way of saying that, you got to make a decision, you know, in the next bit. Yeah. So stuff like that, that that I would hear from my parents all the oh. time were expressions that, that come from baseball. And, but they're, I don't even think the people who use them are baseball fans. They're just part of the Cuban uh, language, I guess, yeah. or Cuban yeah. slang. But, you know, well, base, baseball yeah. was the bane of my existence as uh, in junior high school because everybody – Bloomington Junior High School in Illinois expected me to be good at baseball, but I was terrible, just terrible. I and mean, when I struck out one time, 
um, it's one of the more unpleasant experiences I, I've had. I won't finish the story, but yeah. And they also expected me to be a good dancer, <laughs> and I can't dance. So I, I know dancing and baseball are supposed to be expertises we all have. Yeah, but I don't. I you know. But you know, I'll tell you one thing, Carlos. If you were living in Chicago, there's a tradition, or you know, near Chicago, one of the great Cuban baseball players lived, uh, played for the White Sox, of course. Oreste Minoso, or known up here as Mini Minoso. So that, yeah, yeah. that is why. Well, let me, uh, we're almost running out of time. I guess we're going to have to do this more than than once, uh, as we say, you know, as we honor Ravalu in 20 years. But let me just pick up one last topic here uh, about Cuba today. Uh, it seems, and you've been writing a lot about this, it seems like Cuba is for sale. Oh, I mean, man. there is a map that I think you or somebody or maybe Alberto, you posted the other day of the island of Cuba and all these little parts. Cuba yeah. is literally for sale. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's pathetic. But well, I they, think the calculation, uh, Carlos, I think the calculation they're making is they need somebody else to subsidize them, I guess. That's what they're making. They, they have, they you know, they have run out of everything. One of the posts I've put up, on Babalu today, I think it was my six o'clock post. Um, there's a brewery in Santi Spiritus does not have sugar. They can't find any sugar in Cuba. And, and uh, what was the other one, which was also uh, absolutely ridiculous? Oh, the storm that just uh, battered the eastern half of Cuba uh, damaged many roads. There is zero asphalt available to fix the roads. It's gonna, I know. So it they, is. They're they're broke. They're broke. Everything is is in disrepair, and they have no way that. So they have to sell the country to the highest bidder. That's it, and and uh, the infrastructure is collapsing. Uh, the countries they used to lend them money, even. Even friendly countries like Mexico, they've had to reschedule their debts. They don't have any ability to get any fresh money. So they're basically just selling the island. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, I don't know how much longer that's going to last, but it, it may just solidify them enough to to last uh, a little bit longer. Well, I, I, always, I, I, I always ask the question, because I remember the last time we spoke was, was about, well, not the last time we spoke, but one time we spoke. Remember that article that you wrote uh, between 2012 and 2013 that you compared Cuba before, uh, before like 50 years right. of, yeah. remember that article that you yeah. wrote? And that uh, article, I've used that article many times as a source of information. And I remember at, saying this when we, we spoke that night, that how much longer, how much more can this nation oh decline i mean how much more can a nation decline and i am convinced that in the case of cuba that question cannot be answered you know it it can keep declining till they're back in the stone age mm -hmm. and for if if these very violent vile men run the place uh keep running it the way they want to run it and are able to terrorize enough people to keep them uh, subject to them, they can go back to living in the caves. That's right. 
Now, and, nobody's going to care because nobody's going to write any international editorials about that. Sure. No, I and mean, not, so. not only that. I don't know if you got these questions too, as a, as a kid in Wisconsin. You know, when the people, uh, other kids, found out you were from Cuba, and get these kind of questions like, you know, what did it feel like to wear shoes for the first time? Right. <laughs> oh, you had underwear. Oh my God, you had. Uh, uh, so, people expect Cuba. People around the world expect Cuba to be third world or sub-third world to begin with. Right. And that's one reason that people don't care because they believe all this crap about the medical missions of Cuba and free health care and free education and all this, right. which is all total lies. It's all bogus. That's right. Uh, but um, people don't care, and they go there to have fun, Canadians especially. One million Canadians a year go to Cuba for vacation, and um, they, you know, they go to their apartheid hotels and have a great right. time. They go to these beaches where, as I say, they're apartheid, like you said, and they get to to, to enjoy those little parts of Cuba that are beautiful, the beaches and so on. They don't interact with people. They don't care about interacting with the Cuban people, and uh, and the disaster goes on. Carlos, I want to thank you so much for, for joining me today. I think we will do this again. Sure, uh, anytime. And, and, and uh, maybe the next time. I wanted to do this especially for Babalu because yes. yeah. of the 20 years. And I wanted to salute uh, Babalu uh, for 20 years. But what I like to do is maybe do it more frequently and, and talk more about Cuba yes. and some yeah. of the problems of Cuba that we both uh, mentioned. So I want to thank you very much for oh, your time you. today. And uh, I guess it's pretty, it, where you are right now, I think it's Connecticut, so it's pretty humid yeah. there, isn't it? It is, and uh, we were supposed to get some more Canadian smoke oh, that's uh, right. today, but I, I, it didn't show up. But last week, oh, it my didn't God, show up. I've never seen anything like it. The, the sky was orange. Yeah, I, I, I spoke to a friend in New York who said exactly that. You know, they had to cancel the baseball game. Yes, that's they right. They had to cancel the... Uh, yeah, the baseball game because of that. And they closed down LaGuardia Airport. Uh, yeah, but, because people, I guess, couldn't, uh, you know, the, the pilots couldn't see. But I want to thank you so much uh, for joining me today. And uh, we will do it again. And again, I think both uh, you and I salute uh, Val and Alberto for the great work yes. that they've done yes. at, at Babalu. And uh, we're just lucky to be a part of it. But they're the two guys who stuck with it. And, and they're uh, the ones who get congratulated. And there's yeah. others, too. I know I don't want to leave anybody out. I think yeah, Alberto yeah. Well, we has contributed as well. But uh, definitely Val and, and Alberto are the two who have been carrying that load, and we want to salute both of them, um, yeah. I think, on behalf of the many readers for the great work that they've done. So, yeah. Carlos, thank you so much, and uh, we will do thank it again, I promise. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Silvio. Thank, thank you so much. Our good friend, uh, Carlos Aide, professor, fellow Cuban, we both came here. Uh, as, as youngsters, and now we've gotten old in the United States, and it's, 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 it's interesting looking back at our lives and uh, how similar they were. We both came, um, I, our family went to Wisconsin, his family, well, he and his brother went to, to the Midwest as well, and uh, so we had that common experience. And then growing up here, getting old in, in the United States, it's, it's an amazing thing that I don't I, I guarantee you none of our parents predicted this when they had us back in the 1950s that we would grow up, get out of Cuba and, and, and live, grow old in the United States. But that's the way 
it turned out. And I've always been, of course, very grateful to the United States for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas. Those of you over at Babalu, you'll get to see this uh, video over the weekend. Uh, it'll be there uh, for you to catch up with it. Thank you very much. This is uh, Silvio Canto in Dallas, and we'll talk to you later. Let me say hello to a couple of people who joined us today. My friend, I am, and a couple of others who commented on on the show today. Thank you so much for for joining, and thank you very much.